Our first reading this morning is from Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 858. Luke 23. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And our second reading is Jonah chapter 4. Again in the Church Bibles, page 754. So flip back a little bit. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah has seen God's compassion towards the Ninevites and Jonah is decidedly not happy. Let's read about it. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to this city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Brothers and sisters, friends and guests, good morning, welcome, uh, great to have you here. My name is Pete Stedman, I'm on staff here at Norwest and as Mick said right at the beginning of our service, today we conclude our series in the book of Jonah and I have to say uh, on any reading of Jonah, it is a wild ride. It's a wild ride through the book of Jonah. Here's what we've seen. So far we've seen Jonah disobey God in chapter 1 only to descend down to Tarshish descend down to the bottom of a boat, descend down to the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish, only then to come up 
up, up, probably projectile style, out of the fish. It's a roller coaster. We've seen disobedience in chapter 1, followed by repentance of sorts in chapter 2. Last week in chapter 3, we saw an obedience. Granted, it is begrudging, but obedience still. Uh, we see Jonah doing what God requires of him. So today we come to the end of this tricky but wonderful little book. A book where, to this point, we're left wondering, is Jonah a good guy or a bad guy? Because that's not clear yet. A book where we're meant to be asking... Who are God's people? Is it the pagans, the ones who keep responding to God the right way? Or is it Jonah, this prophet of God who keeps responding to God the wrong way? It's a book where we're asking, who is God for? Because he he seems to keep pouring out mercy upon his enemies and yet reserving judgment for his own. And all of these threads will somehow come together for us today in chapter 4. I want you to cast your mind back to what we saw last week when we had Richard Gosgan. It was great to have him here, wasn't it? Our new uh, link missionary up in uh, uh, the north of WA. But Richard finished uh, his sermon uh, on this note. And if you have your Bibles open, that'll be very helpful. It's verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, that is not just a sentence in a story. That is an amazing thing for us to read. The Ninevites repented, just like the sailors in chapter 1. So here's what we have. We have this Jewish prophecy in the Jewish scriptures about a Jewish Jewish prophet turning Jewish expectations on their heads. So, So the dirty, unclean sailors repent. Now we're seeing the filthy, violent Assyrians. They too repent. And it's not just, hey, God, we're sorry, you know. No, no, repent. The whole city falls to their knees, put on hessian for clothes, blacken their bodies with ash and cry out as one for mercy. It is enough to make a man of God's heart rejoice. It is enough to make a prophet of God's heart sing. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. You remember what we saw in chapter 1. Jonah is a nationalistic, pro-Israel, anti-foreigner prophet. Jonah does not like that God shows mercy to whom God shows mercy. Jonah believes some are more deserving of judgment than others. And right here we're seeing that Jonah does not like God's character. God Uh, God has gone against Jonah's better judgment here, and Jonah is upset. And Jonah now lays bare for us the full extent of his seared mind and his fractured conscience. It's all in verse 2. Have a look at that. Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. This scene is obscene. This scene is obscene. Jonah is showing us that he's known all the way along, somewhere deep inside, who God was and what God was like. He knows it because what he says in verse 2, what we just read then, is actually an ancient creed that Israel used to recite about the nature of God. We find it about eight times in the Old Testament in various forms. Every Jewish person knew this creed. 
Every Jewish person knew who God was. Jonah was no exception. More than that, Jonah knew God was like this because it was part of Israel's history. You see, Jonah hates the Ninevites because they are vile, idol-worshipping God-haters. But so were Israel. And not just before God made them Israel. In Exodus 32, God's people Israel make a golden calf and start worshipping it. After all God has done to rescue them from Egypt, to show them that they will be his covenantal people, bound by promise and action, they chase other gods, and God wants to destroy them. But one man steps into the breach. One man intercedes for them. Moses. And God relents and turns his judgment away because of one man's prayers. He doesn't bring upon them the disaster they deserve. Jonah knew this because every Jew knew this. But he would not extend the grace that had been shown to his people, to another people. But even more than that, two chapters earlier, in this very story, God rescues Jonah from death by providing a fish. Even in this story, we see Jonah rescued despite his sin, his disobedience, his hardness of heart. And yet that grace of God towards him then still doesn't melt his heart towards others who need to be saved. You see, a hard heart makes you a hypocrite as much as it makes you a fool. Here's what's going on. Jonah is angry at God because God hasn't suppressed his own natural inclination to be merciful. Jonah's angry that God has not been moulded or shaped or changed to fit in with Jonah's seared mind and fractured conscience. God never will be. Look, I'm not sure if you can relate to where Jonah's at. He's, he's, he's a pretty bad dude. But let's see how close we can get. Uh, I want you right now to conjure in your mind that person who has hurt you more than most. It's not hard, really. I mean, one thought and they're there. With all the emotion that that brings with it. Now, my guess is, if you're like me, that when you think of that person naturally in your flesh, your mind goes to payback or retribution, anger, maybe retaliation. They'll get theirs. Now, I want you to imagine that through some miracle, that person found Christ, truly found him. He found them. How does that make you feel? Overjoyed that there will be another saint standing next to you around the throne of the Lamb crying, salvation belongs to our God? Or is there a part of you that thinks just apart? Not them. Not them. Because here's the thing, like Jonah, we know our creeds which declare that God forgives those who turn to him. We know the stories of God rescuing people from darkness. And if you sit here today and you know Christ, then you know yourself that he gave himself to you when you were his enemy, far off, estranged, hateful. And yet we're slow to offer that to our enemies, aren't we? Perhaps we're not as different to Jonah after all. That nine years ago, uh, Andrew Denton Remember him? Some of you might. Interviewed a man by the name of Johnny Lee Clary on his ABC TV show called Enough Rope. Johnny Lee Clary uh, was abandoned by his mother. Uh, His father then committed suicide. He grew up with relatives who taught him racism and hatred. 
He joined the KKK and over years moved up the ranks until he became the general imperial, sorry, the grand imperial wizard of the KKK, that is the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. A man filled with hatred. And during his years as a Klansman, there was one man who he set his sights upon. The Reverend Wade Watts, an African-American Christian minister who has since died. Now, the harassment this man felt, you can't imagine. Threatening phone calls during the night, his church burned down twice, surrounded and abused in restaurants, burning crosses and Klansmen on his front lawn. It was just harrowing reading. Eventually, the KKK turned on Clary, their leader, and he had to leave, and he found himself on the streets. And I now pick up the transcript of the interview that he made with Andrew Denton. Johnny Lee Clary. Well, I started thinking, I thought, I'm going to be a homeless person. I'm going to be on the street begging for money. No, not me. I said, the best thing to do is just end my life. So I decided to kill myself. But then I looked down and there was a Bible sitting there and I thought, well, maybe there's a prayer in there that I could pick it up and I could just read some kind of prayer and get forgiveness for what I'm about to do to myself. But I know what I'm going to do. And I set down the gun and I picked up the Bible. Man, I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And before the end of the night was over, I said, all right, I need some help here. And I said, God, if you're really who you say you are, I want you to come into my heart and I want you to help me. And I said, if you'll help me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Andrew Denton, you rang the Reverend Watts, didn't you? What did he say? Rang him up and I said, I asked him for forgiveness for what I did to him. And I said, listen, I just got out of the clan. He goes, I knew you were going to. I said, I feel like I'm supposed to go out and start helping people and speaking. And he goes, well, have you spoken anywhere yet? I said, no. And he goes, well, how about speaking to my all-black church? He said, you do remember my church, don't you, Johnny? I said, yeah. I said, how do I get there? He goes, you ought to know you burnt it down. (laughs) And then he got up there and told his congregation, he said, church, we're going to really be blessed. Next Sunday, we're going to have the imperial wizard of the KKK come and preach for us. And that scared the congregation. They said, Reverend Watts, don't bring that man here. He did horrible things to us. He goes, that's the same thing they said about Saul when he became the Apostle Paul. I'm going to have him. And a friendship was born. Reverend Wade Watts and I became best of friends. You see, Reverend Wade Watts looked down the barrel of a Jonah moment. Faced with a man who'd caused him and his wife and his children and his church so much grief and pain and mental anguish, surely there must have been days when he wanted him dead. Not him, God. Surely not him. But in that moment, Wade Watts acted like his God. He poured out mercy upon the very person least deserving of it. And in the power of that mercy and grace... A life was changed. Can you have a look at verse 4? Ever been in an argument or a discussion where you're holding your own and then someone asks you one question and it just brings your whole argument down upon you? In that moment you realise that you're actually not arguing out of fact or logic and certainly not truth but rather out of ignorance or arrogance or emotion. That's verse 4. 
About 13 years ago, I was sitting in an interview with a senior clergyman and I was being assessed for my suitability to become a Sydney Anglican minister. I'd just moved from Taree back to Sydney to commence at Moore Theological College. And when I was up in Taree, I was involved in a church plant that we'd done out in a small town called Old Bar. And the senior clergyman was asking me why I hadn't attended an Anglican church up in Taree. And I was explaining to him that Taree Anglican was a high Anglican church within a high Anglican diocese that was not focused in the main and was liberal in its theology. As part of the Newcastle diocese, it wasn't aligned theologically or philosophically with, uh, with what I thought church should be about. It was really Pete Steadman in full flight at 26 years of age. <laughs> and then he asked me this. Have you ever been to Tari Anglican? <laughs> I'm not sure I need to tell you the answer. And I didn't need to tell him either. But whether or not what I'd said earlier in that interview was true or not, that question brought me undone. Not fatally. I got through the interview. I stand before you today by the grace of God. Uh, But I still remember what he said to me. He said, we need to be careful of the judgment calls we make. Ouch. Verse 4 is Jonah's, have you ever been to Tari Anglican moment? It is a question that God asks of Jonah so simple and clear and yet so cutting and revealing. Here's the question. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? End of scene one. End of scene one. That's the first part of this little section. But then in verse five, there's a shift. We come now from this discussion between God and Jonah to Jonah sitting outside a city in the desert waiting to see what will happen to the city. But this second part of our story is the answer to that question from verse four. Is it right for you to be angry? What we see here is what's called an enacted parable. You know what a parable is? A parable is a made-up story that illustrates a point. Well, an enacted parable is a historical event that occurs so that God can similarly make a point. And Jonah's about to get his lesson. So look at verse 5. This is what we read. Uh, Jonah goes out and makes himself a shelter to look back at the city and to see what's going to happen. But being a desert, it is dry and hot. God then provides this miraculous plant, a vine or something, that grows up and provides shade for Jonah as he's watching the city. Jonah is very happy. The next day, God again miraculously provides this superworm which chews through the plant and kills it off. The day grows hot, Jonah starts to bake, and he gets angry. So angry he wants to die. Now, we know this section explains the section before because when Jonah was angry before that God was being merciful to Nineveh, God says to Jonah in verse 4, you can see that, is it right for you to be angry? And now in verse 9, God says to Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says in response in verse 4, it is better for me to die than to live. And then in verse 8, regarding the plant, Jonah says, it would be better for me to die than to live. What we're being shown is this. What Jonah feels about the plant is being equated with what he feels about Nineveh. Just be clear on that. And we're going to see two things going on here. Firstly, we're going to see Jonah's disdain for the different. And secondly, we're going to see what is the most important thing in Jonah's life. So in verses 10 and 11, we see God rebuke Jonah for being more concerned for a plant than a people. More concerned about the heat of the sun than the fires of hell. One plant, 120,000 souls. We're seeing Jonah's disdain for the different. We're seeing Jonah's attitude towards sinners. 
Those who he believes are beyond the people of God. And he's been contrasted with God who loves everyone he has made, who longs for them to respond to his mercy and grace with faith and repentance like the Ninevites did. Now this has to raise for us, has to. What is your attitude towards sinners? You know, it's very easy in church circles to begin to regard ourselves as the focus of God's affections in this world of his, as if the fact that he's with us today by his spirit and through his word, tending to our needs, means that he is not really with those beyond us outside this building. But if Jonah teaches us anything, it's that God's interests lie just as much out there as they do in here. Our Heavenly Father is concerned just as much with the misguided Islamic State terrorist as he is with the theologically attuned, materially well-off, socially appropriate people of the hills that you are. God's affections lie just as much with the desperate refugees coming to our shores, trying to raise a family in a place of peace and stability. Just as much as they lie with you, living here, trying to raise your family in a place of peace and stability. Is God less mindful of those people this morning than he is of you or me? Does he care less for them than for us? Is he less devoted to their souls than to ours? The book of Jonah suggests not. And the life and death of Jesus absolutely says no way. Jesus, who opened his arms to prostitutes and thieves and lepers and the demon-possessed and all the scum of the earth who found him. Jesus, who told the religious they were on the fast train to hell. Jesus who hanging on the cross with his life ebbing out of him, cried out a prayer about his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. God's compassion extends to the sinner just as much as to the saint. God's compassion extends to the pagan just as much to the pious. The question is, do you, by your words and actions, live like you believe that? Here's the second thing we see, verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, You have not been concerned about this plant, though you did not, sorry, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left and also many animals? See, Jonah was more delighted by the comfort of the vine than by the well being of Nineveh more troubled by the withering of a temporary shelter than by the judgment that could have fallen upon those people. And Jonah's concern for the plant, because of the enormous self-interest in his heart, because of the shade that it can give him, shows that he wants that more, he needs that more, he loves that more than the 120,000 people who could well face extermination by God. Please don't miss this. Verse 2 in chapter 4 show us that Jonah knew all the right theology and in the end even obeyed God's commands. But his heart was a million miles from the concerns of God. It is so easy to do. Our concerns for people in God's world, have they got Christ at the centre or ourselves? So when you hear in the media about illegal immigration and boat people 
Almost all of the rhetoric you'll hear around this issue will be about you, your safety, your well-being, the financial impact upon you if they come and stay, not the welfare of others, not mercy to those from war-torn, far-flung places. Are your concerns God's? Well, think about what we're told at elections, state or federal. Vote for the party that will help you the most, right? Who will lower your taxes, lower your energy bills, increase funding of the schools in your area, roads in your area, hospitals in your area? We are challenged, in fact encouraged, to vote according to self-interest. You'd be mad not to, right? Are your concerns God's? A number of years ago, the Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, was being interviewed at Katoomba Men's Convention. He was speaking about the challenges he found being someone who loved Jesus more than anything else, but who at the same time held the second highest office in the land. And halfway through his talk, he said to the 3,000 men in the room, I'm going to tell you who you should vote for at the next election. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, the Deputy Prime Minister saying to a group of Christians, telling them how to vote, so inappropriate, right? Here's what he said. He said, I'm going to tell you how you should vote. I'm going to tell you who you should vote for at the next election. He said, you should vote for your neighbour. In that moment, he channeled Jesus, didn't he? But they're just two political examples. Let's sharpen this up a bit. Let's talk about the Ninevites for a moment. This is those of Nineveh today. Monday Mosul is Nineveh in Iraq, the centre of the Islamic State in the Middle East. With their jihadist agenda, with their beheadings of Westerners on public social media, with their attempts at genocide. How do you feel about them? Great compassion for their victims, obviously, Christian and otherwise. But how do you feel about those men you can see on the screen right now? Would you be angry if God spared them? Showed them mercy? Jonah. Or do you pray that God will have a compassion upon them, draw them to himself, that they might lay down their weapons and submit to justice? Certainly justice. But that those murderous soldiers will one day stand next to you around the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ and sing his praises with us. See, the book of Jonah asks you and me, are God's concerns your concerns? Are the things that really trouble you the things that really trouble God? Is God's compassion our passion? That's what God wants. Let me try to bring all this together. Uh, Jonah is a fool, right? He's a hateful, spiteful, hypocritical fool by any measure. But be careful of being too hard on him. Because in your act of regarding him as a fool, we become more like him, not less. We become judgmental and hard and hypocritical. Have no doubt Jonah is a tragic figure in this book. But don't forget chapter 2, where from the belly of a fish, Jonah prays with this psalm-like quality. In the belly of the fish, he knows his need for God. So think about this, and we'll finish on this. In Jonah chapter 2, we see a repentance from Jonah 
like I have never repented. In Jonah 2, we see a depth of repentance that I wish I knew, but I don't. And then in chapter 4 of Jonah, we see an open rebellion with God like I've never rebelled. To take God on, to question his character, to accuse him of being unfair because he's been consistent with his character. I can safely say I haven't done that. But do you see what the book is doing? In the person and the prophet of Jonah, God is showing us the extremes of both repentance on the one hand, chapter 2, and rebellion on the other, chapter 4. And therefore the book captures every one of us. For every one of us falls somewhere in between. And then the book finishes in the most frustrating of ways. We don't see Jonah repent right at the end. And nor do we see God come and judge him right at the end. It's left open. It's almost like the last chapter's missing. No, it's not missing. It's deliberate. And it's there to make us think. What happens to Jonah? This man of God who is so frail and weak and feeble and foolish and yet who is also so known and loved by the God of mercy and grace. And because there's no answer, it forces the question onto you. What's going to happen to you? A person of God who is so frail and and weak and feeble and foolish, and yet a person who is so known and loved by the God of mercy and grace. Jonah closes by leaving this question hanging on us. How will we respond to God's call to love our enemies and have our hearts moulded by God's concern for this world of his. We're going to respond like Jonah in chapter 4, Jonah in chapter 2. Jesus shows us how. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful little book that is so loaded. So it seems like a kid's story book until you start really reading it. And um, we want to thank you for what you've peeled back and revealed in our own hearts and minds and lives. We want to thank you that you've spoken to us through this little book and we have seen the ugliness of our bigoted ways and insecurities and racisms and hatreds that we hold. Will you break our heart? Will you remind us that we've been saved from death? And that who are we to to prevent that from going to anyone else? Help us never see others more deserving of judgment than ourselves. Help us never see others as more deserving of mercy than ourselves. Help us just look to Jesus, who holds it all together for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.